Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books Network. I am your host, Lee Pierce. I'm excited today to welcome Carly Woods, who is the author of Debating Women, Gender, Education, and Spaces for Argument, 1835 to 1945, one of my uh, homegirls over in the rhetoric and public affairs area. And the book is, um, it looks at, it spans a large historical period, obviously, begins with women's exclusion from university debate and then continues through their participation in co-educational intercollegiate competitions. The book highlights a crucial role that debating organizations played as women sought to access the fruits of higher education in the United States and the United Kingdom. And so despite various obstacles, as I'm sure you can imagine, women transformed forests, parlors, dining rooms, ocean liners, classrooms, auditoriums, and prisons, actually, into these vibrant spaces for ritual argument and argument cultures. And they not only learn to speak eloquently and argue persuasively, but also use debate to establish a legacy. And they explored difference, engaged in intercultural encounter, and articulated themselves as citizens. And not only did the debaters engage with issues of their day, often performing, questioning, and occasionally refining norms of gender, race, class, and nation, but in tracing their involvement in an activity that's at the heart of civic culture, Woods also demonstrates that these debating women have much to teach us about the ongoing potential for debate to move arguments, ideas, and people to new spaces. And with that, I'm very excited to welcome somebody who came out of grad school just before I did and has always been just, I've just been a little bit jealous of how good their writing is and uh, no less so in this book that I thoroughly enjoyed. And it's got a nice like historical bent for those of you. I know the people that listen to the uh, New Books Network actually began as a, started by a history professor. So we have a, a love of history over here. So this will be a nice intersection of history and rhetoric, communication, debate, and gender, race, and class. So with that, I welcome Carly. Carly, it's okay if I call you Carly? Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, come on down. Tell the people, you know, what your deal is, what you're about, how the book came about, um, and just a little bit of an overview maybe of some of the themes of the introduction so that they're familiar with, you know, what is intramural debate and what are argument cultures and some of that before we dig into the specifics? 
Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, this book is uh, was a long time in the making, and uh, it started as my doctoral dissertation, um, and it was a real labor of love. Hmm. Um, I, Aren't they all? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. They have to be. Um, I uh, I was a debater. I am a debater, um, and because I do think it's an identity that lives on. Um, but I did debate in high school um, and college, and I coached debate as, as a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and so being a debating woman myself, um, I came to this topic uh, after observing gender dynamics in debate, mm-hmm. uh, but also um, seeing how uh, oftentimes, uh, the things that I was learning in my argumentation and rhetoric classes uh, overlapped in interesting ways, um, and sometimes were in tension with the things that I was learning in my women's gender and sexuality classes, especially in graduate school. And so, this project really was about looking at debate, um, something that I, an activity that I knew uh, had been dominated for a long time, at least in the competitive circles that I was involved in uh, by uh, you know, white elite men and thinking there has to be more to the story, right? If, if we don't know about uh, famous debaters entering the discipline of communication, or we don't know about uh, debaters who went on to uh, politics and activism and other social pursuits um, that were women, it's just that we're not looking hard enough. Uh, and so the the project really was about trying to find uh, the best evidence that I could uh, of these vibrant what I what I refer to in the book as argument cultures, um, and those were these uh, debating societies or debating teams uh, that were led by, founded by, and sustained by uh, often generations of women. And so in the introduction, I do talk about um, some of the different types of debate. You can think broadly about uh, public debate, uh, probably most famous uh, we think about in uh, rhetoric and communication and histories of public address, like the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. Um, You can think about intramural debates, uh, where debating societies on collegiate campuses uh, served as really important uh, forums for discussion and social engagement. And then you can think about the rise of intercollegiate debate in the United States and the United Kingdom um, and the the idea that uh, universities were debating against each other and that this became a really important part of uh, the history of higher education uh, in these countries in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, So I I take the, the critiques of debate and argumentation, which is oftentimes uh, talked about as these sort of uh, agonistic, overly aggressive, um, polarizing forces. And that you know, critique was made m- most famous by Deborah Tannen in her book, The Argument Culture. And sort of drawing on David Zarefsky's work on argument cultures, um, I think about studying the specific debating societies, the specific debating women that I do in this book um, as looking at what goes into 
what, what, what were their labors and what goes into creating and sustaining um, these argument cultures that really had women at the, the center. Um, so that was my goal. And, you know, as I say in the introduction, um, I don't want to present these women as flawless. They were not, right? They were uh, deeply uh, imperfect humans, um, and they were very different, right? Um, but uh, the one thing that they had in common is that they were drawn to this activity um, that had public speaking and research um, and really collective action at its center. Um, so that's the, the the part that was really interesting for me. Um, and then I had to, you know, set upon the adventure of seeing where there were uh, archives and uh, people to interview and uh, other forms of, of text that I could uh, access to under, to really understand what happened within those debating teams. Yeah, you end the, the introduction with a sentence I thought was really good, which is uh, you say, the women who populate this book were not all extraordinary in terms of how history remembers them but all had the extraordinary experience of participating in an argument culture, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> Great <Okay>. sentence. <laughs> Thank um, you. So, yeah. And so there's a, there's a, there's obviously like a, there's also obviously like a tension in the book that, and I mean that productively between sort of what you call these cultures or argument spaces, right. And how they debated literally the physicality, which made the book kind of interesting to look at as a, as a kind of a spatial study, but then, that isn't, then you kind of have also these, what we might call like proper names, which aren't really proper names, because of course, nobody's going to pick up this book and immediately recognize a lot of these women's names. So it's nice because you get a flair for the personal in terms of their biographies, but because of the way that they're spatialized, the book becomes about exactly like you say, more about the argument cultures and the, and the, these women as participants in them. So I thought you did a great job of laying this out so that it wasn't really a cult of personality, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't not a little bit about their personal biographies, because obviously, like them as characters is really fascinating. It reminded me, have you read the book, The Monopolists? No. By Mary Pylon? Okay. Had a similar kind of vibe. Her book came out, I think, a couple years before yours, and a similar kind of thing, tracing how Monopoly had had moved around in these spaces and, and been very much like a feminist anti, uh, anti-establishment game. So I had kind of a similar feel that that these women all move around in these different spaces, but what combines them is their participation in these argument cultures, which is why, of course, they're relevant to us now, because they may not be around, but the argument cultures in which they participated are oddly still recognizable. So I thought that was really interesting in the book is is you recognize in a lot of these debates from like 1915 issues that we actually still are debating. So in that, it was obviously not identical because you see things like you, you have to sign these waivers that you're not like, I confirm I'm not an NEGRO in order to debate. So obviously like that kind of stuff doesn't happen in the same way, but some of the underlying fundamental tensions about race, class, and gender are still definitely very present. That's so absolutely what you, true. Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've often thought that that could be an interesting way to revisit, revisit institutional histories, um, oh. or to learn about histories to, to say, what were they debating on this day a hundred years ago? Oh, that's um, an interesting idea. Into, um, to the, the arguments that persist and don't over time. Yeah. Well, and they, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, so maybe, so maybe a little overview of how the book flows. Cause I, I just think it's helpful for listeners to have a spatial understanding of the movement of the book since they can't see a table of contents or anything. And then why don't we dive in, you know, right in the first chapter where you talk about what you call the first girls debating club uh, at Oberlin college. 
Sure. Yeah. So um, for me, the, you know, being able to select different case studies for this book um, really was a matter of, uh, like I say, uh, finding evidence. Um, Hmm. Where were those spaces where people had the forethought to preserve records? um, And, you know, who who said, no, this is important because um, debate is not necessarily an activity that would have been preserved in great detail. Um, And in fact, before, you know, uh, just more recent years, uh, a lot of debate activity in the 20th century, right, continued on to not be um, recorded. Um, And so it really was a matter of locating places where somebody thought that the the activities that these women were doing were important. Uh, And in some cases, this was preserved by the women themselves, um, because they they believed that uh, future generations would would care about it. And, uh, and once I get into the later chapters, it's about, uh, you know, a debate coach who really believed in the, the, um, in preserving their histories. So I do, I start at Oberlin college, uh, in Ohio, uh, well known for being the first, uh, college in the United States, uh, to admit women and admit, uh, people of color. And they made the claim that they were the first college debating society uh, for women in the United States. Uh, And that uh, sort of origin story um, was uh, really what drew me to study Oberlin uh, and Lucy Stone and Antoinette Brown Blackwell are uh, pretty well-known figures in women's history. Um, but then when I got into the archives and really started learning about the societies at Oberlin, um, as you were just mentioning, it became not only those sort of better known names, um, but also the generations of women who also participated, um, who we may not learn about in history classes. Oberlin College is also where um, the uh, there are, uh, because black women were uh, admitted and were part of these debating societies, um, I'm able to understand um, the importance of debate in the lives of people like um, like Lucy Stanton Day Sessions, who is um, credited with being the first woman to complete a collegiate course in the United States, the first black woman to complete a collegiate course in the United States, um, and better known black women activists like Mary Church Terrell, uh, who also attended uh, Oberlin College. So that's the the first study is at Oberlin College. There's that origin story. Uh, We move through uh, to look at the Ladies Edinburgh Debating Society, um, which was uh, held in the uh, dining room of Sarah Mayer from 1865 to 1935. Um, And then uh, sort of bridging that idea of moving across the Atlantic and moving back again, um, I look at... uh, the first uh, British women's debate tour of the United States in 1928. And then the final chapter in the book is uh, negotiating citizenship at Pennsylvania State Colleges from 1928 to 1945. And there I'm looking specifically at the cases of uh, Penn State and the the University of Pittsburgh. So that's the broad trajectory of the book. Um, I was really interested in giving this sense of what debating women did uh, in these intermediate 
intramural societies as well as these intercollegiate societies um, when they were interfacing with men debaters um, in more uh, detail uh, through the course of intercollegiate competitions. Yeah, and I mean, and it's it's interesting you were it's interesting how important the alumni associations were and in, in later you get into the the debate coaches themselves right but it's also interesting that these alumni associations sat down and you know 15 20 years later and said you know we should definitely get all these records together this is going to be important to someone <laughs> and that- lo and behold it was that's right. Yeah. I mean, at, at Oberlin is the best example of that. Um, the interesting thing about Oberlin is that the Women's Debating Society, uh, they're, because they have this claim to being the first ever, uh, depending on who you, you're hearing from, either the first ever Women's Debating Society, period, or the first U.S. Uh, Women's Debating Society mm-hmm. uh, at a collegiate institute, um, that, that, that idea that they were the first was really important um, as a way for these women at a coeducational institution to secure their legacy. And so I actually tell the stories, two different stories um, in this chapter. One is a more dramatic one. And it's the idea that um, that women uh, students at Oberlin were in a rhetoric class and were told that even though they you know, were in these classes with their uh, men counterparts, that they had to be the audience for the men's debates. And because of that, Lucy Stone and Antoinette Brown Blackwell said this isn't right. Um, and they founded a secret debating society in the woods behind campus. Uh, they also, in the colder months, uh, went in uh, with the permission of black woman in the village of Oberlin, used her parlor as the site uh, of their debating society, um, their debating society activities. Um, so that is the story that circulates around uh, so much. I mean, I found it in, um, in, textbooks. I found it in women's history books. I found it in, um, there's a whole Hmm. novel that's a romantic um, sort of uh, historical fiction novel um, Mm -hmm. that kind of uses that idea. Um, So that's the the sort of more glamorous, dramatic telling of the origin story. Um, There's no way to, you know, confirm whether or not that happened. Lucy Stone tells her daughter about it and her daughter writes about it. Um, But then the other story is the one that is meticulously cataloged in these minute books that they kept. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the, those are the materials that I'm able to access um, at Oberlin college. And it was, as you were, you were just saying, the, the work of these generations of Oberlin women debaters who said, yeah, this is really important. Um, we need to continue telling the story of, uh, of our, our society because it became a major part of co-education and made it became a major part of the institution. Um, you know, at some point, a, a whole third of Oberlin's uh, women students had been part of one of their debating societies. And so it was a huge part of the culture and a way that they were able to say, we have a legacy in higher education. Um, and I actually had the opportunity just recently to, um, to talk, to give a presentation to the DC area um, Oberlin Alumni Association. And it was really interesting to, to hear 
um, their reaction to uh, other Oberlin alums in the, the 20th century who were kind of doing similar work at preserving their institutional memory. Was the reaction positive? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, okay, I mean, you were just like, oh no, <laughs> well, is there a beef? Is there a beef about the origin story or something? <laughs> no, it was it was really interesting because they were actually um, they were very interested in the history and they were surprised that they hadn't been taught it more. Um, mm. They were saying that you know you oftentimes you know as an Oberlin student you you hear uh, this was the first uh, college to allow women and men and African Americans. Uh, in, in higher education during this time, um, but they didn't necessarily get these detailed stories. Um, and so they, they really enjoyed learning about that part. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to spend too much time here just because we have so much to cover, but there were two really interesting things about the, the creating, so Oberlin sort of creates this legacy. So whether it's true or not, it certainly reverberates into what comes after and has been important for people, women, especially kind of understanding this sort of non-women's role, right? This sort of the legacy of taking on a role that traditionally was not for women. And um, so first of all, there's there's the inclusion of leadership in this group by, like you mentioned, Lucy Stanton, who's later Lucy Stanton Day Sessions, who is an African-American woman. And so, of course, I'm surprised, knowing what I think I know, reading a book, that the origins of women coming into debate are also including of black women, which I was not expecting. And then the second thing um, is you make this really interesting comment about the way they kept their meetings. And so you say that it's in the, in the records, they would just, they would write things like um, we're going to have competing perspectives. And it seems like it was a written discussion and not a free debate. And that's kind of how it's all presented. But then you say, especially in the case of the defiant Lucy stone, you know, it's, unlikely that she didn't get her passions aroused and start speaking off the cuff and kind of actually get into more of debate, not just written position papers. And you say, I, meaning you, <laughs> surmise the, LL, the LLS chose to call their activities discussions instead of orations or debates in their records in order to avow, avoid rousing the suspicions of the ladies board. Right. So even the archives themselves, you think maybe are not as are kind of couching what maybe was more robust debate yeah. than, yeah, which I found really fascinating because you're sort of even reading between the lines of the archive itself. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And I mean, because uh, Oberlin has this um, really important place in the history of higher education, um, you know, people oftentimes think like, oh, it was this, you know, really free place for women. And it wasn't. There was a, a very, there was a, a ton of oversight, right? Which is why um, the spatial dynamic in that chapter becomes so important um, to chart, you know, not only, you know, were they going to the parlor in the village? Were they going to the forest? Um, but also their efforts to uh, mm -hmm. maintain just rooms and buildings where they could uh, debate. Because, they, they, their activities were very much restricted. Um, and so, yeah, that, that second part of your, uh, of your comment, I think is, is really interesting, um, because, uh, debate was seen, uh, by many colleges of the time. And I actually opened the book with a little anecdote from, uh, Vassar college about how discussion is okay for women. Right. Uh, I, yeah. Uh-huh. 
is incongruous with, uh, you know, our, our feminine ideal. And so I do think that a lot of what happened in the 19th century was about uh, blurring the lines and about walking those fine lines when you're under the watchful eye of the, of the ladies board. Um, I do want to, I do want to just um, take a moment to really appreciate um, Lucy Stanton Day sessions Um as you mentioned, she, I mean, she is just a a really fascinating figure. She's president of the LLS when she graduates um, in 1850 uh, at the commencement exercises. She gives this amazing speech called plea, uh, plea for the oppressed um, right before the fugitive slave act of 1850 is enacted. And um, it's one that I now teach in my history uh, of rhetoric and public address classes. Um, But she is a, a person. And I think a really interesting person, to look at alongside a white woman like Lucy Stone. So we've got the tale of two Lucys here, um, who, you know, absolutely benefited from this leadership position in a debating society at Oberlin. Um, but then because of, uh, uh, of uh, race and sex discrimination throughout her life, you know, really struggled in ways um, that, you know, her white counterparts did not. Um, and so I hope that this um, this chapter, in addition to just telling about the history of debate at this institution, is also uh, bringing forth these um, these figures that may not um, be on everybody's um, radar. And of course, she is uh, a person who, even though she did complete four years of collegiate study, she's oftentimes um, not given that title because she was doing the ladies course at Oberlin instead of the classic um, course. But I think that she absolutely should be um, remembered and honored and that we should be teaching her her um, speeches when we can. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah you should come back they've been um they've been mentioning to the the ceo of new books is like oh we should have a great speeches channel and i was like we should except all the great i would want to teach the not great speeches yeah (laughs) because you know so like because because this this a plea for the oppressed is not on the american rhetoric top 100 and yet when you look through it it's easily better than most of the speeches that are on there by white men presidents. And so, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, and everybody, by the way, if you're listening, I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can find this, uh, the speech text archived on black past. That's one word, blackpast.org. So I'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, it's really, fa- like I said, I was really, I'd never heard of her prior to this. And it was very cool to see black women once again at the origins of things you thought were white women's spaces. So it was awesome that, that that's how that, that the book starts that way. Cause you, you expect that to be something that happens later. And then lo and behold, 
there it is. And so then we move on to, um, from Oberlin, you move on to discuss the Ladies Edinburgh Society, Ladies Edinburgh Debating Society, which mm-hmm. is now called a debating society, right? So a little bit of a shift there. So what happens there and, and who's, who's, who's who to watch in this chapter? Yeah, so this is the society that is held in the home of uh, Sarah, Sarah Elizabeth Siddons' mayor um, from 1865 to 1935. It's started at a time when women of Edinburgh, Scotland, are not able to be admitted to universities. And so she really kind of sees this as uh, a, a counter space to the university mm-hmm. space in Scotland during this time. Time. Um, and they held monthly meetings in her home. And the idea was that they were going to debate, you know, all of the political and social and literary and aesthetic topics of the day. Um, they publish a, a journal for a while as well. Um, and it, yeah, it just becomes a, a really interesting um, society to look at because you have that sort of consistency in the figure of Mare, uh, who starts this as a young you know, a very young person and then, um, and then, uh, is, is very old when, when the society, um, ultimately dissolves. Um, but this is also a, a society that was very diligent in recording, um, the, what they did as, uh, in their organization. Um, and that's why I was able to, uh, I was so happy uh, to be able to go uh, to the National Library of Scotland and just pour over uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages of minute books um, because they believed what they were doing was important. They uh, mm-hmm. cataloged uh, the topics that they, they debated, uh, who debated, and the major arguments that were made in the debates. Um, they were very specific about um, noting when there were changes in the rules of the debating society. Um, they emphasized how to mentor novice debaters within their society. Um, so there's all of these really fascinating um, topics that you get to see over time within a single society, including things like um, when they were debating the topic of women's suffrage, um, how the society debated and voted on that topic when they uh, brought it up five years apart or other mm. increments. So you could see the evolution of uh, individual debaters over time. You could see the evolution of um, topics over time. Uh, and yeah, so it just really made uh, that single organization focus very, uh, very interesting, which you can't do, obviously, when you're studying a university debating society where um, students, you know, are there for a limited number of years, and then they move on to other right. groups. Um, so this is a society that, you know, as I mentioned in the chapter is, um, it, you know, is, is fairly homogenous in terms of uh, race and class, um, but they themselves are seeing, they believe that they through their participation in the debating society are these women of infinite variety because they, you know, some are mothers and some are not, some have jobs, some are not, um, some are really active in other, uh, campaigns of the time, um, like, uh, movements for women's education and suffrage and, uh, the establishment of hospitals, um, while some are not. And so they, it's interesting to study, uh, an organization of people who, you know, obviously 
from our contemporary vantage point, we can recognize, um, you know, we're very uh, limited and, and, and flawed in many ways, um, but to see how they articulate themselves, um, mm-hmm. the purposes of these minute books and other uh, publications that would secure their legacy. Now, in the middle of this chapter, you have this hilarious and also kind of upsetting graphic that's a bunch of these sketches of women in these various poses, and it's called Notes at a Ladies' Debating Society. And so like, they're all labeled, and one of them says, doesn't mind the debating club, but prefers waltzing. <laughs> so can you tell us how this graphic fits into this chapter? And for anybody... Um, if you, if you get a chance to get the book, you have to look at this page pretty closely because some of these captions are just ridiculous. Yeah. So the idea that women's debating societies were the butt of jokes in the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, is one that, you know, persists across geographic boundaries and, and different periods. Um, and, uh, and actually that's something that I've been uh, really kind of tracing out. Um, It's so ridiculous uh, that women would think that they could debate these topics. And I, um, and uh, that sometimes appears as, as jokes published in newspapers around the world during this time. Mm. This is a really interesting one because it does show that idea of um, women in a debating society having infinite variety. Um, There's a believer in facts and a believer in figures. Um, There's the silent member versus the leader of the house. Um, Yes. And then there's these gendered, there's the masculine, the feminine and the neuter. Um, Mm -hmm. The interesting thing I found about this print is that it includes the caricaturist or the flippant debater. So it actually was presumably a woman who was part of this debating society who was doing the caricatures herself. So perhaps maybe poking fun at her own (laughs) society. Um, What's weird about it is it both kind of makes it undermine its own point. Because on the one hand, it's, it's, yeah, it's very ambiguous, right? You, You can't really tell if this is supposed to be mockery or if it in fact shows the range of subjectivities that women are able to occupy without being any less, fa- I mean, it's a really fascinating graphic. I, I can understand why you chose it as the centerpiece for the, as the, of all of the ones you could have chosen. This one's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Thanks. I think that, yeah, the, the, the visual rhetoric of, uh, <laughs> of these, these moments that, you know, there's not a lot to be able to interpret um, everything behind it because we don't even know who the caricaturist was, um, right. but <laughs> Uh, but still a very, uh, very fitting for this chapter on infinite variety. Yeah. And, is there, and then in the next chapter, you, you it, um, the, the title of that one is Britain's Brainy Beauties, which I thought was, it was a great select. So do you want to say anything else about the Ladies um, Edinburgh Debating Society before we talk more about the British Women's Debate Tour? Because this is where the, so you have, you have Oberlin, which is in the U.S., and then you have Edinburgh, which is in Scotland. And now we actually have the British Women's Debate Tour coming into the United States at the end of the 1920s. So they kind of, things sort of merge up in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Takuzo Kanishi and I um, wrote a a piece for the Tokyo Argumentation Conference many years ago in which we talked about international argumentation or or international argument cultures. This Mm -hmm. idea that um, different debaters around the world may use 
similar structures for argumentation, but of course they import with them um, all sorts of um, cultural norms and arguments that might make sense in different cultural contexts. And so I was really excited in this chapter um, to kind of connect what's going on over the 75 years of the Ladies Edinburgh Debating Society. And then I go in the next chapter to just focus on a single year, 1928. And the reason that I focus on 1928 in this third um, case study is that it's the first time that women are selected to go on an international debate tour. Um, So Leonora Lockhart and Nancy Samuel and Marjorie Sharp um, of various um, universities, Cambridge, Oxford, and the University of London, um, are selected to represent the the UK uh, in a debating tour of the United States. And so it becomes an interesting chapter to kind of look at this idea of argument cultures, um, because they are, uh, when they're covered in the press, um, yes, absolutely, they're oftentimes are given these labels like Britain's brainy beauties, um, and the sort of novelty of the coverage is about the fact that they are from a different country and women. Um, and on over the course of this debate tour where they're traveling around the United States, they are representing uh, our, their argument cultures in various ways. Um, they're debating men sometimes. And so mm. this becomes a really, uh, a, a, it grabs the attention of many people. So this is the chapter where as opposed to kind of looking at a debating society or a debating team from their own perspective through minute books, I'm combining uh, what I see in uh, widespread newspaper coverage uh, with the debaters themselves and what they go on to write when they publish, uh, as well as the, to me, the real star of this chapter is to have a full transcript of a debate that they participated in uh, at Bates College in Maine, um, because I, you know, there in the earlier periods, I never have the full transcript to be able to look at. Um, so it's quite amazing to uh, to be able to look at all of those different dynamics in the course of this, um, you know, relatively short period in 1928. Uh, if I may, I will also say that 1928 is a really fascinating year um, for international debate in general. Uh, People who were really interested in international education uh, during the interwar period as a way to try to sustain peace. Um, And so it's not only these British women that are traveling the United States in 1928. um, There is also a team uh, of men debaters from Puerto Rico and the Philippines um, that travel the United States in 1928. There's a team from Australia that comes over. Um, So I've become increasingly interested in Uh, Especially if you think about the history of the communication discipline, um, depending on which origin story you look to, um, that a lot of people tie that history, at least in speech and rhetoric circles, to debate coaches uh, and speech faculty kind of breaking off from English departments um, to to think about how uh, the discipline in the interwar period was involved in these intercultural or uh, intercultural and international uh, education efforts. 
Um, so that's all to say that the international debate program is part of um, this much larger um, uh, these much larger initiatives, uh, including the beginning of study abroad programs and other educational efforts that we might kind of dig into in greater detail. Yeah, I mean, it really does. It really does sort of close the gap between history, because the more you read this book, the more you're like, man, this this is 100 years ago, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel that much different to, I mean, it does feel different, but you know what I mean? There's so much continuity between the struggles that I think people still have with gendered expectations around public argument and what you're seeing happen 100 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been able to um, trace, I mean, I've, I have, it won't surprise anybody to know that I have Google alerts for all sorts of different uh, versions mm-hmm. of women debating. Um, and across many, many national contexts, right? We oftentimes see in political debates, um, women being derided in various ways, um, being told that they're more distracting uh, than, you know, focusing on the substance of the argument, like all of these tropes um, that we hear in presidential debates, political debates, local debates, intercollegiate debates, right? There's nothing new about it. and so, yeah, you can show me a headline from today um, that sort of talk, makes a gendered argument about women in debates, and I can show you a historical example that kind of um, that kind of goes along with it. So that's oh, depressing wow. in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I see this book as hopefully providing some examples of what women did in the face of being ridiculed. Um, or um, being diminished um, in terms of um, their identities as debaters in, in these various um, social periods or historical which periods. Is, yeah, which is a great setup for when we get to um, sort of like the interwar period when, of course, and this is an interesting chapter. So this is like the, thir- you know, this is 1930 to 1945. So there's a lot of anxiety about women going into the workforce and coming out of the workforce and going back to the workforce and taking men's spots and not taking enough men's spots, depending on where we were in the war at that point. And so you look at, um, you look at citizenship and debate at Pennsylvania state college. So I said, and I assume, right. So we're looking at Pittsburgh here, which was where you went. So this is kind of interesting because you're sort of looking at your own legacy in a way, in a much right. more immediate, an immediate sense. Um, and you've got some great photographs in this one as well. I love the photographs. I don't like, I like that this, there's this new trend of just adding photographs just to, just for fun, right. <laughs> Not necessarily because they're your artifact. Uh, uh, from the Pittsburgh Press from 1945, and um, these women hard at work debating, and so it's like very gendered, but also very laudatory. <laughs> yeah. So this was a great chapter to end on. I mean, it's it's great how the chronology into 1945 brings you right up to the argument about citizenship. So I don't know if you did that or if the archive presented it to you, but it, I mean, it reads really well ending on this note. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, the looking at Pitt and Penn state is really interesting because they were debating, you know, they were in close geographical proximity and were debating each other, uh, during this time. Um, and this is also the chapter because it ends in the forties that I was actually able to reach out, um, to people who are mm-hmm. debated during this time who are still alive. Uh, people like Joan Huber, Huber, who went to Penn state university, um, who was able to tell me, uh, the story, which I also found in the archive at Penn State, but was able to, to give me some interesting um, details um, about how um, during the war, uh, women, uh, you know, shared part of their debate budgets with the men's debate team 
uh, at Penn mm-hmm. State um, because so many of the men's students had gone out to war, back to war with the expectation that when the war was over, um, that they would be on more equal footing with the men debaters. And they were very crushed to find out that that was not the case. Um, so again, you know, there's so many studies of uh, the gender dynamics of this period. Um, but uh, debate gives it, uh, d- having debate as a, a focus um, gives a, 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 a sort of different inroad or a different insight into um, the way that this all plays out. So a lot of the um, arguments that you see about citizenship in this chapter are about um, these moments when women are interested. Well, obviously, all, m- many women have always worked, right? We don't want to in- continue the, the myth that women were not working, uh, especially women of color, um, right for this period. Um, but that it is this this moment in which there are uh, more opportunities for women in different kinds of jobs. Um, but in the process of securing funding, in the process of securing, uh, you know, institutional legitimacy at these institutions, uh, the debaters themselves and the coaches uh, have to to make those arguments in very specific language about a sort of white feminine citizenship. So women will participate in debate, uh, not so they necessarily will take on these very powerful leadership positions, um, but because in order to be a good wife and mother, you need to you know be able to have strong nerves or a teacher, uh, right? So so it's it's really interesting how even these people that were real allies to the women. Um, debaters uh, were publicly making these arguments um, that assured people that they weren't going to push it too far. Um, So that's one of the things I find um, fascinating about those, that specific case. Um, In the case of Pittsburgh, I do look at one sort of celebrity figure within the discipline of communication, Mm -hmm. Marie Hockmuth Nichols. Marie Hockmuth Nichols. Yep. (laughs) Oh, oh, Marie. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, we've got the public address division um, award named after her. Yep. Um, but as myself, you know, as a communication scholar, um, always looking for women in the history of communication, it was really interesting for me to find out not only was Marie Hackman Nichols a debater at Pitt, but that she also coached the all women's um, an all women's team in Pittsburgh um, before she went on to get her uh, PhD at Wisconsin. And in fact, her first publication was this piece um, where she was making the argument that it's called um, Your Gown is Lovely But, and it was making the mm-hmm. argument that people ought to hold women debaters to a higher standard because they're worth it, essentially. <laughs> um, so I think any way you kind of slice it, whether you're looking at the you know more celebrity or better known figures, or you're looking at these women who are part of the debate team at Pitt and Penn State who you know may not have gone on to be famous, um, it's really interesting to think about all of the socio-historical dynamics and the way that they played out um, when women were participating in intercollegiate debates, they were representing their institutions and sometimes debating against men uh during this period yeah this this was fun it was fun to to see this kind of like merge up to things i like recognize i was like oh i know who that is you know it's like she's part of this whole deal yeah it was fascinating um and i just i'll read i'll read you the part that i highlighted just for people that aren't familiar uh so as the this is you writing now me reading you what you wrote as the title your gown is lovely but suggests 
Hakmuth identifies the second cause for mediocre debating by acknowledging that some women debaters have imported or been coached to import charm school style social graces into the activity rather than learning poise through exposure to argumentative criticism. And it made me think of the Sheryl Sandberg book mm-hmm. about, you know, which, you know, whether you like the book or not, that's a different issue. It is sort of a similar argument, which is, you know, you, you, your socialization is as much to do with your intelligence as not. And it's, it, it's not that I'm excited about the Sandberg book. I don't <laughs> want to talk about that book, but it's exciting to see that, that Nichols was writing about this way earlier from a debate perspective in the sense that it's the argumentative criticism and the social, it's a very rhetorical argument as opposed to like women should take responsibility for their oppression. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was really, that's kind of the connection I made, which I found really fascinating that she was so ahead of, ahead of that argument. That's only now just starting to become something people are talking about. Right. Oh, do these, do these rhetorical socializations like matter and how we speak in public? It's like, Oh, duh. And she was like 50 years ahead of, of her time. We, right. And yeah, I mean, I think she's an interesting figure because um, I was able to go into her papers at the University of Illinois, um, which is oh, where I yeah. found mm-hmm. this, um, this publication. And, um, you know, I certainly don't agree with everything. <laughs> I don't, but uh, yeah, I mean, you I, can't write. I mean, she's writing in a time that you're yeah. just like, what? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah, there's a lot, again, uh, flawed human beings, right? But she mm-hmm. was um, just in terms of being. A, a woman academic in the discipline who was oftentimes the only woman in the room or the only right. woman in the you know journal or whatever. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see how um, she kind of worked through these issues in the debate activity and then would continue to work through these issues throughout her career. Um, and then um, in the you know as a, as one of the few. Um, women rhetorical critics in the, you know, first part of the 20th century that were, um, you know, sort of in the conversation, uh, which of course there were many more, uh, who could be in the conversation and we're, um, we need to continue to do work, uh, to, to see, um, what their stories are. Yeah. And you've got a second book coming up about Barbara Jordan and you just had a piece come out last year. I think that was awesome about, um, on the voting rights act that I will link in the show notes as well for, Anybody who likes to read academic journal articles, <laughs> this one's a good one. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Barbara Jordan was also a debating woman. Uh, woman. She mm-hmm. was a uh, debater at Texas Southern University, uh, an HBCU in Houston. And um, I want to tell her story, um, not only uh, through debate, but also to see the different ways that Barbara Jordan um, and her work as a politician and as an educator um, continue to circulate in contemporary political uh, communication. And so uh, even though Barbara Jordan um, passed away uh, prematurely in 1996. Um, I'm interested in the way that her arguments um, live on in 21st century debates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of circulation, it's almost like you know what I'm doing. Uh, in the conclusion, just to bring it to a close, you have this lovely metaphor of argument as travel, and it may, um, which I like for a couple of reasons, not only because um, because of the argument cultures now meeting up with the spatial argument, meeting up with like another domain where women were sort of not really like public travel is obviously something that women were not, it wasn't considered ladylike for a long time. 
But there's also been some new books coming out in uh, Black, African, African American, and Afro diasporic studies about travel as a metaphor for race, right? Like the car, literally the, the automobile going around the country. Um, yes. A book, I'll have to link. There's a book that just came out, won a bunch of awards, and I can't think of the title of it. But so it was cool to see all that meet up in your book at the end in this argument as travel metaphor, which you actually take, if I'm not from Arendt, Hannah Arendt, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's yeah. That, that's one place where I find the travel. Yeah. Well, yeah. One, one of the one of the inspirations. So, will you do you want to wrap us up by telling us a little bit about that and where you see your current intervention, directions for future research? I mean, anything like that in terms of leaving the audience with some thinking points, other than obviously buy the book and read the rest of it. But other <laughs> thinking points? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting when you write a book because it takes so long, and then uh, the publication it takes so long to write in the first place, and then the publication process <laughs> it takes so long. And you know, this was published in 2018, and so um, I can this book continues to obviously. Um, these these stories continue to inspire me, um, but I they've also opened doors to other um, other avenues of inquiry that I'm really excited to pursue. So in the conclusion, I suggest that if we really are looking at a history of women debaters or, or a history of debate with women, women at its center, um, that as opposed to the metaphor that is most likely and the most often used when we talk about argumentation and debate, which is battle or war, um, mm. that the, in these women's own language, when they talk about what they got out of debate, um, that travel is a more apt um, metaphor. And so the idea of mobility and movement and how this activity um, allowed them to either physically move in the case of, let's say, the 1928 um, international debate team across the, the Atlantic, um, or how it caused them to shift their opinions about different topics, the, uh, the movement of activities and bodies and arguments over time is how I, I, I kind of put it. Um, but I also acknowledge that there is so much wrapped up in the idea of mobility and travel that is specific to um, one's race, gendered, um, mm. one's race and gender and sexuality and nation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, the this idea that Barbara Jordan's experience with debate and travel is going to be quite different from Marie Hockmith Nichols uh, mm-hmm. is a really important point. And I too have been very much late, uh, especially lately reading books like Traveling Black, the, A Story of Race and Resistance by Mia Bay. I don't know if that's the one that you were- That uh, was the one. Yes. I just looked it up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's fantastic. And um, yeah, really it good. helps me to understand, uh, I think about the idea of um, starting and stopping um and uh, the idea of um, some of Armand Towns' work in the communication discipline mm-hmm. um, and Lisa Flores on stoppage. And yeah, so the, to really take seriously that idea um, that mobilities cannot be understood, cannot be divorced from um, from one's uh, experience as a, a, a black person, in, especially in the United States. And so I'm, I'm now working on this book on Jordan and thinking about her experience driving through the South with her debate mm-hmm. uh, yep. to a debate tournament. Um, and in, uh, I was able to interview her debate coach um, several years, many years ago now. Um, and he tells the story of, you know, packing their own food um, or having so they didn't have to, right, so they didn't have to stop to go into public 
white spaces. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or having to stay outside of the town that they were debating in because the university was held in a, t- you know, the university um, tournament was held in a town that would not have welcomed them into a hotel. And so, um, so yeah, so that's very much kind of animating the next phase of my, um, of my research. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm both continuing to work with that idea of argument as travel, um, but trying to dig in and think about um, the way that um, in the case of Texas Southern in the 1950s, um, that that travel is both uh, enabling and, and constraining in, in really fundamental ways. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm so excited. I mean, I loved this book. I can't wait for the second one. So with that said, as we promise our readers that you'll be back on soon to talk about the Barbara Jordan book, (laughs) let me just once again tell everyone that I've been speaking with Carly S. Woods, author of Debating Women, Gender, Education, and Spaces for Argument, 1835 to 1945. And Dr. Woods is now associate professor in the Department of Communication and affiliate faculty in the Department of Women's Studies at the University of Maryland. And speaking of universities... As always, New Books Network would like to thank Michigan State University Press and all the other university presses who work so hard to put out this work. And as a reminder to the audience, if you're not interested in grabbing a copy of Dr. Wood's book for yourself or for a lover of history, uh, debate, uh, women's and gender and race studies, then you can always pick up a copy, preferably hard, preferably not from Amazon, but from one of the non-affiliate booksellers or the website itself, which I will link in the show notes. Um, And you can donate it to your local library. You can donate it to your university library, a school libraries. It's a wonderful way to recognize the work being done and also contribute to public knowledge, a very apropos thing to do, given that this is a book very much about forming public knowledges, if getting the book for yourself is not something in which you are interested. And with that, I will just um, say goodbye, Carly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes. And to the audience, um, to stay safe, wash your hands. I know we're not out of the woods yet. And we will see you soon again on another episode of New Books Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.